Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm Will Oremus. And I'm April Glazer. Hey everyone, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We're recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, February 12th. On today's show, we'll talk about the implications from last week's bizarre, but also serious fallout between Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos and American Media Incorporated, the Trump-friendly owner of the National Enquirer. Bezos claimed the Inquirer was blackmailing him by threatening to release private and embarrassing and quite racy photos between him and the woman he was having an affair with. Bezos stood up to the alleged extortion, or sextortion as some people call it, by publishing his account of the situation, complete with threatening emails from AMI. At the same time Bezos was standing up for his own privacy, his company was making a deal that could have serious privacy implications for many Amazon customers. This week, Amazon announced it's acquiring Eero, That's a startup that makes Wi-Fi mesh router systems. To sort through this mesh, we'll be joined by Stacey Higginbotham, who writes all about the Internet of Things. We'll ask her, what does this mean for smart home users' privacy? And where should we draw the line on which things in our home should be made smart and which things we might be better off leaving dumb like they were in the good old days? Yes, the good old days when things were stupid. And as always, we'll end with Don't Close My Tabs, some of the best things we saw on the web this week. That's all coming up on If Then. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey, team, just a quick note. We're going to try a little different format next week going forward. We're super excited about it and we're excited to share it with you. First, let's get into this week's news. April, you wrote about the alleged sextortion attempt by the National Enquirer against Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos. Bezos published emails on Medium, which showed that the Enquirer's top brass appeared to be threatening him with the publication of racy photos. Remind us exactly what they were trying to force Bezos to do. Sure. So this wasn't actually the first uh, kind of exchange between Bezos and the Inquirer. Uh, Even before this, or this is rather in response to the Inquirer having published uh, other private messages between Bezos and his girlfriend, Lauren Sanchez, a former TV anchor. Bezos, after those messages were published, launched an investigation into how they got them. And uh, and the National Enquirer didn't like that investigation. It had been making them uh, very, very angry and then tried to blackmail Bezos to call off the investigation and make a public statement saying that the National Enquirer's publication of his text messages before was not politically motivated. In response, Bezos said nope or didn't say anything, I guess, and instead published a Medium post with the whole exchange, uh, including AMI lawyers trying to blackmail or, or, or what some may call sextortion uh, Bezos into uh, making such a statement and then calling off the investigation with a threat of exposing non-consensual uh, or rather photographs that he didn't consent to them having uh, of him in 
sexually explicit situations. Uh, and, you know, Bezos could tackle it head on because he certainly didn't risk losing his job <laughs> by being associated with uh, with racy photos that uh, could be published on the Internet or even the fact that they exist. Right. So he certainly um, had the latitude to to talk about this publicly. Right. So a lot of people applauded Bezos for what he did, which is come out and, and publicize the whole thing and and sort of dare the National Enquirer to publish the photos and say, you can't blackmail me. But you, but you made a good point in that piece you wrote. Most extortion vi- victims aren't billionaires and don't necessarily have the latitude or the freedom to do what Bezos did, right? Yeah, I mean, I just think it it's it's good that he did it um because it calls attention to to the fact that this happens quite a bit. Uh, a Pew study in 2017 found that 3 in 25 Americans between the ages of 18 and 29 have had explicit images of them shared without consent. That's like 12%. That's a lot. <laughs> you know, so 3 in 25 yeah, that's more people than I thought, yeah. uh, in that age bracket. Yeah, and um and you know, Bezos uh, was able to get in front of this situation, but most people don't even get the choice. Uh, usually, like when explicit photos are shared without their consent on the internet, um, it's it's often called revenge porn, which is uh, when, say, an ex partner, out of malice, usually publishes a photo uh, of of say their their ex girlfriend online naked, um, and uh, and they don't get a they don't get a say in it, and then it's just up there. Um, you know, there, there. I think one particularly egregious example um, of this is uh, the case of that came out last year of thirty thousand. Um, it was a thirty thousand member Facebook group called United Marines um, that was hosting, you know, hundreds or, or maybe even thousands of explicit photos of uh, female Marines and and veteran service members without their consent. Um, and so, yeah, this is a, a a huge problem that that usually women have to deal with. Um, and, you know, Bezos coming out a- a- ahead of this, I thought I thought it was really interesting. It was certainly a power move for him. Um, and I'm also glad that it brought attention to this. But um, but clearly, you know, it was a way that kind of a bold and effective way to to gain public sympathy uh, here. And, and it worked because it sucks that this happened to him. You know, it sucks that it happens to anybody. Yeah, it sounds like it's good that he called attention to it. But but based on your analysis, it sounds like it would be unfortunate if people drew the conclusion that, oh, this is how everybody should respond, because not everybody is able to respond in that way. A lot of people don't even have the platform or know where they could go. I mean, if they posted something on Medium, it wouldn't get uh, read by everybody in the world and, and make headlines. You know, it might just might just reflect poorly on them. Uh, at least they would worry about that. I hope if there's uh, any takeaway from this, because it's really just kind of juicy gossip that we should move on from, but I hope that employers especially, but, you know, friends, family, anyone that might judge us, uh, when they see something online uh, of someone, just know that it's it's often our digital footprints are not consensual, you know, and and if there's porn of somebody on the Internet, that, that doesn't mean that they consented to it. Um, you should you should ask them about it, maybe or don't ask them about it. Whatever you do, just don't judge them necessarily for it, uh, because this is going, I think, become increasingly common. And, and the fact that J- Bezos was was dragged into the public light with this um, I, is a moment to to realize that this isn't some you know bizarre fluke. This is actually something that uh, we might see more of down the line. Maybe in the future, everyone will be humiliated on the Internet for 15 minutes. Uh, I, I, I hope not, but I, I'm not. Uh, yeah, I don't see a lot of sunshine down the pike in, in this arena. 
moving on, we, we are going to spend the rest of the show actually talking about uh, things that uh, Bezos's company would like to put in our homes that could potentially spy on us. <laughs> so uh, I'm excited to discuss that because, you know, as he certainly deserves privacy. Everybody does. But um, he's also kind of working to build a bit of a surveillance state. So... That's right. So when we come back from this break, we'll have our interview with blogger and podcaster Stacy Higginbotham, all about the Internet of Things and Amazon's latest play to get into your home in a new way. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on creditworthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. Our guest today is Stacy Higginbotham, the editor of Stacy on IoT, a news publication covering the Internet of Things. Stacey has been covering technology for major publications for 18 years, and she's co-host on two podcasts, This Week in Google and the Internet of Things podcast. Stacey, thanks so much for joining us on If Then. Thanks for having me. So let's talk first about one of the biggest stories in the tech world this week, which is Amazon acquiring Eero. Eero is a startup that began in 2014 and makes mesh Wi-Fi networks. You place the little beacons around your house, and it's supposed to eliminate Wi-Fi dead spots. Why did Amazon acquire Eero? Well, there are a lot of reasons. First off, Wi-Fi is the cornerstone of any smart home. And so when Amazon launched the Echo back in 2014, it had no idea really what it was getting into. It had no clue. And in 2015, it was like, oh, let's add some smart home skills. And from there, it took off. And it it actually really has spurred the adoption of a lot of smart home technologies. But none of that works if you don't have good Wi-Fi. So the first thing that Eero does is it gives them awesome Wi-Fi coverage that's super easy to set up. And you actually see competitors doing this too. Google, they have their own mesh Wi-Fi network. And Samsung actually did a deal with another startup called Plume to put Wi-Fi into a lot of its products, including its SmartThings home hub. So that's the first reason. The second reason I think, is because it gives Amazon a lot more data about what's in the home. So Eero knows what I have in my house in terms of the devices that are connected to my Wi-Fi network. It also knows where I go on the web. It doesn't use that information. At most, what it does is it aggregates data about all of its users and, and gives some fun stats about like, hey, the most popular connected home device is this Amazon Echo. Even if a person doesn't have um, an Amazon Echo device, Amazon will now have the ability to say, oh, hey, this is totally a Google household, but they have the following devices. So this is really valuable to them. And then there's a third component, 
which is Eero has a home security, a cybersecurity service called Eero Plus. And for $10 a month, you get a VPN, a password manager, you get ad blocking, you get parental control, and basically network scans that say, hey, your computer tried to download some malware. We stopped it. Don't worry. And that could be a really valuable service that Amazon would like to offer people, especially as they get more of these connected devices. Okay, yeah, and you make a really good point about Eero having this amazing window and insight into when you use your devices and how often they connect. And, you know, I guess I'm just curious, like, you know, for instance, Sonos, right? So if you, and and Eero's released some of this data, anonymized, of course, but just said, you know, we know that people in New York listen to Sonos on their Eero, you know? Um, And so this is going to give Amazon just a, a huge kind of, leg up or or at least knowledge about how people flow from device to device. Uh, but we have seen some real privacy blunders with Amazon and its uh, at-home connected devices. You know, particularly I'm thinking about the Amazon customer that received like 1,700 audio files of a stranger that was using Alexa. Um like what are your what are your thoughts on on you know I see how this could be beneficial to to Amazon but what do users need to keep in mind when it comes to Amazon having this just really broad window uh, that can probably paint a pretty accurate picture of uh, when and how we connect to information throughout our home. The big question for people is people who have Eros but have not bought into the Amazon Echo ecosystem. Because if you bought into the Amazon Echo ecosystem, they actually have a lot of this data about your connected devices, provided they're connected to your Echo. So I want to separate those people because those people have already decided, hey, Amazon, you just take what you want. You got it. Um, Right. They're ready. They're ready on the team. So (laughs) if you're not on that team and you have an Eero, Eero has said that their privacy policy will not change after the acquisition. I feel like we've heard that a lot. So, you know, I'll take that with a huge grain of salt. And Mm -hmm. honestly, I've talked to some people about what they're doing, like, are you going to keep your Eros? And a couple of people are like, no, I'm going to go get some ubiquity Wi-Fi routers. So I think actually a good service journalism piece that I would assign if I were an editor is, hey, what are the best mesh Wi-Fi options that don't sell your soul to Amazon or Google? Right, because the biggest competitor is probably Google Wi-Fi. They went out and, and sort of, at least some people see it as they copied Eros technology to make Google Wi-Fi, which they released a year or so ago. And they're trying to do the same thing and get you on their platform with, with Google Home and, and all that, right? Yes. Now, I will say that Eero is not the first mesh Wi-Fi router out there. So no. there, there no. was a company, and it's still around. It's called Securify. They make the almond routers. They were far, far in advance of everybody else in saying, holy cow, we're going to need much better Wi-Fi because we're going to connect a lot more devices. And homes right now will need Wi-Fi in weird places like outside by your jacuzzi or in your garage for your Tesla. So that company's still out there. And while they will let you, if you want, integrate your stuff with you know, Amazon or Google, you don't have to. And I also think that Apple did a huge disservice by getting out of the router business when it did. I mean, it was still way earlier, but that was actually one of the best experiences out there. And it's a shame that that now that they're so privacy focused, they haven't started that up again. One of the big questions that people had when this news was announced is, are my Eero beacons going to start having Alexa inside and start talking to me? I guess the flip side of that would be, 
are Alexa devices like the Echo going to start being Wi-Fi beacons? Do you see either of, or both of those things happening down the road? We see that happening already. So I am still confused as to why Google actually hasn't created a Google Home that is also a Wi-Fi hub. It feels really weird to me that they haven't done that. But Samsung has done that. They put Wi-Fi into their SmartThings devices. And I've also talked to lots of startups and people at router companies who really do believe that your light switch may have an access point in it because whole home Wi-Fi is just that important and it's just going to kind of seep into the walls. With that in mind, we also already see Alexa getting into the walls via, you know, Ecobee, various light switches that allow you to talk to her. Um, So I think we will see Alexa, an Alexa device that is also a router. I don't know if we're going to see Eero. I mean, that's basically, it's going to be one and the same. The current Eero devices don't have microphones, I believe. So they couldn't become a Madam A device. Right. And I I guess a a question I have here is one of interoperability. You know, the thing when it comes to these types of, you know, when it comes to a a router or a way to connect to the Internet, we're starting to get kind of more into the infrastructure of things. And that's going to require that that these devices remain interoperable with things that are not Amazon or Alexa focused. Um, And and just to be clear, I want to step back for a second. You said Madam A. Um, Why did you say that? (laughs) Can you can you give some insight to our listeners? Sorry about that. On our show, because so many people use an Echo device, we try not to say our name because we don't want to trigger everyone's. (laughs) We also say Hey G instead of Google. It's funny. Yeah. Occupational hazard (laughs) on my end. Um, On interoperability, this is actually something I've written about probably two years ago because we saw this coming. And it's not, it's mesh Wi-Fi. So there is actually a standard now for mesh Wi-Fi. The Wi-Fi Alliance put it out late last year. But- when they did that, Eero said, yeah, we're not using that particular standard. So it's unclear if Eero will ever follow that that standard. And, and the benefit there would be like, instead of buying my Eero, like standalone router plus a beacon, maybe another router, I could buy like a, a Velops router from, oh, is that, I think that's Netgear. No, Netgear's Orbi. Velops is Linksys. So a Linksys Velops router and uh, Eero, and they would work together. Today, that doesn't happen. All right. So Stacey, you've written on your blog about an upcoming move. I think you said you're moving from Austin to Seattle. You have more smart home devices than the average person, I can safely assume. Uh, Has that been an extra complication as you get ready to sort of reset up a smart home in a new place? Oh, my gosh. Yes. So first off, I will tell you, and this is based on Comcast earnings, the average home now has, well, the average home that has Comcast, which is, there's a lot of them, 11 connected Wi-Fi devices. So, you know, just giving you a baseline average there. Um, I have about 40-something Wi-Fi devices and then all these random sensors that run off of hubs. So I don't even know how many devices I have, which is kind of a problem. So with the move... The first step I had to take was actually deciding which devices should stay with the house and then pulling out, the second step is pulling out everything that won't stay with the house and decommissioning all that stuff is actually kind of a pain. It's gotten a lot easier, but when you pull a device out of your house, you really should go into the app and say, 
hey, I'm deregistering this device. And then you should also say, hey, delete my account if you don't plan to reinstall it. I don't plan to reinstall it because I'm going to rent for a year. So that's that's the step I took. The second thing that you have to do is you have to basically put in all these other devices. Like I had six different light switches in my house because my job is to test this. But I don't want someone to buy my house and have to download like six different apps to control their light switch, right? So I had to go in, pick one light switch, and then install everything. I've got a hub ready. And then what I'll have to do is basically offer them the house with, I've decided on Lutron lights. I have a Delta faucet that's connected to the Amazon Echo and Nest thermostats. So those are the kind of things that they'll have to deal with. And I've got a document basically that's like, here, if you want to connect this, here's how you do it. But yeah, it's a pain and it takes a lot more thought than I kind of thought. That sounds awful. That sounds like my nightmare, actually. I don't think I could ever be organized enough to do that. But I'm, I'm curious, do you think that the uh, all these smart home objects you have, do they make your life simpler or do they make it more complicated? When I had like six different light switches, they did make my life more complicated. But that was part of my job. So I will say the things that, because I took out a lot of stuff that won't convey with the house, like all of my Hue bulbs, I had set those up with motion sensors in a couple rooms of my house. So whenever I would walk in, they would just, the light would turn on. And then when I left two minutes later, it would turn off. This is really simple. We've had this in offices for, you know, decades where you'll sit in a conference room and the light will come off if you're not moving enough and you have to wave your hands. So taking that out actually has been the most painful is really an extreme word there, but it's been the most painful thing because now when I walk into my laundry room with my arms full of laundry, I have to find the light switch. And then everyone in my family has to remember to turn certain rooms off that we've never had to turn off before. So I would say that it has made my life more convenient in some ways. And as long as, and my family would tell you it's made their life convenient a lot of ways because they don't manage it. They just tell me when things are broken and I fix it. So that that's the other side of it. All right, Stacy, I'm amazed that you managed to control this <laughs> complex array. I wish you best of luck on your move and thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. One final quick break and then don't close my tab. Some of the best things we've seen on the web this week. Okay, it's tabs time. I have a tab I'm really excited to share. It's something that actually came out last month, but it's for a magazine that's published every two months or so, so I'm still in the clear. It's from The Baffler, and it is a fantastic essay uh, entitled The Whitest News You Know by Aaron Miguel Cantu. I might have mispronounced his name, and if so, I apologize. But I highly recommend it. It's beautifully written, and it goes into kind of the economic history of why media is so incredibly white, as well as the history of resistance from black journalists uh, and Latino journalists who have attempted to have more accountability in newsrooms uh, and more diversity in newsrooms and how that's failed, how it's worked, and really why we are where we are today, where we see kind of headlines that 
reflect a kind of white supremacist or at least white dominance in thinking uh, that we also see echoed at the podium of the White House quite regularly. So uh, a, a beautifully written history. And it, get, it, it also um, gives some shine to one of my favorite books uh, on kind of the history of media. It's called News for All the People. Uh, and I really recommend that book. It's from Verso Books, I believe, or you can get it from Verso Books, a fantastic publisher. Uh, and that is a history that is not taught in journalism school, I don't think, because I didn't go to journalism school, but this is what I hear uh, about, um, again, uh, journalists of color uh, struggling for representation in the newsroom, um, which is a decades-long history uh, and, and incredibly important understanding why we talk about things the way we talk about them today. Um, so so please take the time to read this. And, and you can get it in print. The Baffler makes a beautiful print magazine I highly recommend people subscribe to. Uh, it's also linked online, but um, I got it in print and you know, buy journalism, <laughs> buy magazines, read them, enjoy them, touch them, um, own things. Uh, Will, what's your tab this week? All right. My tab this week comes from the New Republic, and the headline is The False Promise of Silicon Valley's Quest to Save the World. I feel like mm. that headline could apply to any number of uh, different types of stories, but this one happened to be about the mission statements of tech companies and Silicon Valley companies. There's a cliche in Silicon Valley that uh, of companies being, quote, mission-driven, um, which means, you know, in theory, it means that you come to work every day because you believe that what you're doing is, is improving the world in some way. In practice, it can often mean that you're expected to work uh, way beyond the, n- the normal sort of hours and give a lot of your life uh, mm-hmm. to the job rather than treating it as a nine-to-five. Um, the the piece was by Kate Lossie, who was one of uh, Facebook's early employees. She wrote a good book on, on the early days of Facebook called The Boy Kings. And she just looks at the ways in which these mission statements are phrased to try to avoid getting too specific um, in a way that could give employees leverage over a company. So for instance, Google's unofficial motto for a long time was don't be evil. That phrase also cropped up in its 2004 IPO filing. Um, You know, don't be evil is open to a pretty wide range of interpretations. Nevertheless, it's clear enough that employees over the years have seized on it to say, look, hey, we're doing something evil here. When there was the controversy over Google's involvement in Project Maven uh, defense contracting, uh, employees spoke up and said, this is evil. And they kind of used it to, to hold the, the company to its own standards. And so Lossie wrote about how uh, increasingly companies are being a little bit more careful to uh, avoid mission statements that can be used against them to, to force them to do things that might be in the public interest rather than in their own interest or that of their shareholders. Yeah, I thought that uh, was an interesting piece also just because, and I'm not trying to, to, to poke holes here, but um, mission statements in every field are vague <laughs> because uh, they just are. Like even for nonprofits I've worked for and helped form, we write vague mission statements. I mean, we try to be explicit about what we're doing, but also with enough, you know, uh, wiggle room to, to, to move and change and not be held down too hard. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think it's 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 really useful to, to look at mission statements. It's also good to remind ourselves that these are usually like really, really big tents that people make big on purpose. Um, but uh, but yeah, she's uh, she's a powerful voice. I'm, I'm glad that she's continuing to critique Facebook. And that'll do it for today's show. You can get updates on what's coming next by following us on Twitter at IfThenPod. You can also email us at ifthen at slate.com. Send us your tech questions, show and guest suggestions, or just say hi. 
You can follow Will and I on Twitter as well. I'm at April Laser, and Will is at Will Aremus. Thanks again to our guest, Stacey Higginbotham. You can follow her at Giga Stacey. That's G-I-G-A-S-T-A-C-E-Y. And thanks to everyone who's left us a comment or a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. We really appreciate your time. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Our producer is Max Jacobs. Thanks to Alberto Hernandez for engineering here in Cloudy Berkeley. And thanks to Nick Holmes at Occupy Studios in Newark, Delaware. We'll see you next week. Bye.